This is episode 499 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. The title of this message, There Is No Tomorrow, comes from a scene in Rocky Three. If you've seen the movie, you'll immediately recognize the scene. But the title speaks of our time running out as a nation to put off to tomorrow the things we should have done yesterday or last week regarding our spiritual life. I mean, just look around. We face a time in our nation when it appears God's judgment has finally fallen. After allowing the murder of over 65 million unborn children on our watch as the church, God seems to have allowed us to experience the consequences of our sins. Since we as the church and as a nation, quoting from Romans 1.28, did not like to retain God in their or our knowledge. God gave them or us over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And what are those things which are not fitting? Let me just name a few. Abortion, sexual promiscuity, homosexuality, idolatry, greed, violence, rebellion, arrogance, transgenderism, you name it. We as a culture are embracing it with open arms. So what are we to do? I mean, how bad is it really going to get? And what can we do to have the faith necessary to persevere during the coming darkness? These are vital questions for the church today and for you and me as his supposed light in darkness. So keep listening and we'll discover how to become a faith prepper together as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Listen, sometimes we have a misunderstanding about uh, the end times, especially when it comes to um, the rapture. Um, I uh, heard this preached when I was such a little kid uh, in a Southern Baptist church about the rapture. And in my mind, again, it's my faulty understanding, but in my mind, it was like everything is going to be perfect. Everything's going to be just like it always has been. The economy's growing. Everybody loves each other more. We're all making more money. We're getting healthier. I mean, everything's just going to rock on like in a perfect world until that day that the rapture takes place. Then bang, all the Christians are gone. And then all of a sudden, dark clouds come in. It gets really dark, really terrible. The Antichrist rises up. You have all these revelation judgments that come. But prior to that, everything is is going to be just hunky-dory. And there's really uh, very little truth in that at all. Because when you think about it, uh, especially when Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 24, that he talks about the end times and the trouble and the tribulation coming like labor pains on a woman about to give birth. And for you husbands who have heard your, uh, your wives as they've gone through the labor pains, and wives, I don't need to tell you what this is like you know better than any of us men, they start relatively small, they start relatively far apart, and you know that all of a sudden it's that time, husband, it's that time we need to go to the hospital, how can you tell? Well, they're becoming a little more painful and they're eight minutes apart, which means they're going to become more painful and six minutes apart and four minutes apart. Remember all that? And Jesus said that's what it's going to be like at the end times, that the stuff that we see in the book of Revelation that comes to full fruition will actually begin prior to the rapture during the time we we live right now, giving us a sign and a picture of things that are to take place. In Revelation chapter 6, for example, 
You've got these seals that are open, and you have these four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they talk about. And these are some of the things that are supposed to happen out there. But if you notice, the precursor of these are happening now. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, Now I saw the Lamb open one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. That's not a diadem, that's a Stephanus crown. And he went out conquering and to conquer. And as we went through the book of Revelation, we saw that this was false Christ. And so we've got one of the biggest signs here. It starts out, we've got deception. We've got false Christ. We have a picture of somebody who's masquerading as Jesus, but not the real Jesus. Have you noticed how Jesus is being reinvented today to be exactly like some left-wing politician? That, oh, Jesus would be for abortion and Jesus would be for gay rights and my Jesus this and my Jesus that. And so it's only going to get worse. Verse 3, he opens the second seal, and there is another horse, a fiery red horse went out, and to it it was granted to take peace from the earth, and people should kill each other, and there's wars and rumors of wars that Jesus talked about in in Matthew chapter 24. Can you not see that happening? Our nation right now, again, if you'll do the research, we're preparing for a war with China that could happen at any moment when China decides to take possession of uh, Taiwan. And that China is threatening us with war right now. We've got all the stuff going on in the Middle East. We have Iran and Iraq getting closer to a nuclear weapon. It's just a a powder keg. And we, of course, during the time of war coming, we're trying to make our military more woke than they are prepared for battle. And that's okay because that's just the direction we're going. The world is moving into a time of cataclysmic conflict. The third seal in verse number five, had a pair of scales. And he basically said, a quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. Back then, a denarius was a day's wages for an average worker. So working all day long, you can get just enough wheat to take care of your financial needs. That's called inflation. That's called runaway inflation. That's called hyperinflation. But don't touch the oil and wine because there'll be a huge division between those that have who are opulently wealthy and those that are struggling just to be able to pay their bills. If you have noticed, again, I was a CPA before I was a pastor. And what our government is doing right now is the recipe for runaway hyperinflation, like the Weimar Republic after World War I, like Venezuela not too long ago, like some of the other, like Zimbabwe in 2008 and 2009. And now we're going to pass more trillions and trillions of dollars while the price of everything is getting higher. By the way, have you noticed that? It's only going to get worse. Verse number seven. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed after him and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger, with death and with the beast of the earth. And by the way, if you look at this word beast, it doesn't necessarily mean lions and tigers and bears 
oh my, it can actually mean microscopic beast, like pestilence and stuff of that nature, which Jesus talked about in a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 24. And we've got the coronavirus, we have the Delta variant, we have this and that, and this is coming down the pike. And oh my gosh, everybody's afraid. We have to lock ourselves down. We all have to mask up. We have to get vaccinated. We have to not talk to anybody. We can't hug anybody. We have to stay six feet, eight feet, 12 feet apart because these terrible things are happening that we can't control that may may have been produced in some sort of bio lab in China or somewhere else. We see this happening. And in the end times, the stuff that comes to full fruition here, we begin to taste and experience now. And I'll be real honest with you. You either see it or you don't. I mean, you either take your blinders off and you look at the world that we're in right now. I, I, I can't do that. I don't want to do that because I'm too busy building a business or raising a family or trying to pay off my house or taking my vacations or enjoying my best life now. I don't want to hear any bad news. I don't either. But you either see it or you don't. And if you see it, you go, wow, things are getting progressively worse. It's like this insanity, the Romans chapter one insanity, the second Thessalonians chapter two, strong delusion that is settled on rational people in our nation that fight about the fact that you can't say a biological male who claims he wants to be a female can't have children. Isn't that crazy? You can't say that. And as I shared with you a couple weeks ago, the budget coming out of Washington now has removed the word mothers because mother is offensive to a transgender, I want to identify, my name's Butch, and I want to identify as some sort of woman. And mother means they can have babies. So the budget has come out from our government now calling mothers birth bear or childbearing persons. It's insane what's going on right now. And if you disagree with it, you get canceled. Everybody comes against you. You're a racist or a homophobe or, or you're just done away with. And the church just keeps rocking on. Look, again, you either see it or you don't. You either understand the situations we're living in right now or you choose not to. But if you see it how it is, the Proverbs, and this is in Proverbs 22.3, and again, same verse duplicated in the Proverbs, in Proverbs 27.12, divides people up who see it and don't see it up as prudent or simple. Prudent and wise and understanding are just dumb and naive and la-di-da. Those two categories the Lord gives us in the book of Proverbs. And here's what it says. A prudent man foresees evil and takes evasive measures. He hides himself. But the simple just walk on out in the middle of it. They just pass on by and suffer punishment or torment or pain or suffering because of the evil. Prudent man sees a tornado coming. He uh, gets in his storm shelter. A foolish man just goes outside with a long pole and sticks it up in the air and dares the Lord to strike him with lightning. Foolish, simple, or prudent. Again, you either see it or you don't. I see it. And I have been accused 
of uh, being negative. I've been accused of, you know, can't we just, can't we just hear messages about how good God is? Yes, hopefully you've been hearing those weekly, but there's another side to that too. It's kind of like when you preach the good news of Jesus Christ, in order for the antidote of your sin to mean something to you, his substitutionary death on the cross to have power in your life, you first have to understand the condition we're all in and the consequences of sin. Ray Comfort talked about that, that you proclaim the 10 canons of God's law, Here's God's standard in the Ten Commandments. How do you measure up against those? Well, obviously not well. Hence, I have good news for you. If I came to you and said that I had a cure for leukemia, you would say, hey, that's great, but I don't have leukemia. I'm not really interested. But if you were diagnosed with leukemia yesterday, you would be super excited, correct? Works exactly the same way. Therefore, we've talked about the higher Christian life. Somehow... As a, as a pastor, my job is to shepherd and warn and encourage and instruct. And, and so we've been talking about the higher Christian life for six months. As a matter of fact, I, I even sent out 25 messages on a daily basis for almost a month about the higher Christian life with emails that went with us. You can refer back to it. It's always there rather than just waiting on what we talked about on Sunday. The idea of the higher Christian life is that your life, your spiritual life, would grow to a point that where you're at right now spiritually, you'll be higher than that, closer to the Lord than that, because it's that kind of faith that we're going to need to persevere during tough times. Prior to that, we talked about that kind of faith, what it's necessary for us to prep or prepare or store away. And I hate to use that kind of like a tangible thing like faith, but, but to grow our faith to the point that we would have the kind of faith that would persevere during tough times. And as I was going through the faith prepper thing, it dawned on me that we, we never talked about how to do that, hence the higher Christian life. This is the direction we've been heading because difficult times are coming. Now, I don't like to I get depressed when I look at Fox News. I get angry if I look at CNN and all the stuff coming out of Washington and crazy. It's like people have lost their mind. And, you know, I really, don't even want to deal with that kind of stuff because you can get really sidetracked on politics. But our nation is not heading in the direction that I want my grandkids raised in. I mean, they're getting ready to go back to public school. And the big argument now in the school system is about critical race theory. And if you haven't studied that, you need to study that. It's, it's in the middle of the church right now where you as a white person are somehow have to apologize for privilege. And I mean, it's, it's ridiculous stuff going on. The, the NEA had a meeting and they voted and had signed this petition and irrespective of what the school board teaches, irrespective of what our government says, irrespective of how the parents feel, uh, 15,000 certified public school teachers signed a document that says, we're going to preach it anyway. We're going to teach it anyway because that's what we do. And school's starting now for untold millions of young, impressionable minds in a matter of weeks, and it's only getting worse. The Lord has placed upon my heart the desire to help people prepare spiritually, not 
beans and bullets and all that kind of stuff, but spiritually for the times that are coming. I have fought that for almost a year. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I'll lose friends. I'll lose church members. I'll, uh, I'll be canceled. I'll be disenfranchised. I'll be deplatformed. And I, I, can't, I can't put it off any longer because of the heading, there is no tomorrow. That's a line that impacted my life a lot from Rocky III. If you ever watched that movie, he's getting ready to fight Clubber Lang after Clubber Lang beat him and Apollo Creed is his coach and trying to help him out and he just doesn't have the, the mental ability because he's afraid for what's to come in front of him and they're racing on the beach and, and Rocky just kind of gives up. And so Apollo Creed says, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? Tomorrow, tomorrow, we'll deal with it tomorrow. And Apollo Creed says, there is no tomorrow. And it's exactly that way as believers in Christ in a nation right now. There is no tomorrow. Let me, let me show you how sinister some of this stuff is that just flies under the surface. Jesus said there'll be spiritual apostasy that will take place in the last days, that people will abandon the faith for something that they claim to be Jesus, but is not really Jesus. Many of us come from a Southern Baptist background. There was an election two years ago for the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and the man here holding the phone, J.D. Greer, has been the Southern Baptist Convention president. It's the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. It's been historically the conservative bastion against liberalism with United Methodist Church and the Episcopal Church and stuff like that. It's kind of moved in another direction. The Southern Baptist Convention has been known for its conservative biblical uh, pseudo-fundamental values. There's been a movement inside the convention to push it to the left, especially when it comes to social issue, issues like um, transgenderism or uh, the Bible isn't a finite book, but the Bible is a living document that can be changed based on culture, the uh, gay rights movement, even abortion and stuff of that nature. So J.D. Greer, who pastors a church here uh, in North Carolina, was the president and began to move that, the Southern Baptist Convention, into a more leftist political, and I hate to use that example, but a leftist political, social, moral kind of picture. Uh, they had a new uh, election, uh, I think a month or so ago, and the man uh, with the glasses, the shorter of these two, Ed Littleton, uh, of a large church in Alabama became president. There was some shenanigans that took place. The people claimed that the election was stolen, that he didn't win enough votes, and then they had some council meeting and some agreements were made, and nevertheless, he was elected president of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. So people began looking at his life. And they started looking at his sermons and they would listen to his sermons to see what he believed and, you know, what his position was. And they recognized some of those sermons. Wait a second. I've heard this before. And so there's something called plagiarism or sermon gate. Plagiarism kind of kicked off recently. Unless you follow pastor stuff and church stuff, this is all Greek to you. And they found out that many of his sermons were all copied from J.D. Greer. 
And I mean seriously copied. I mean, they have videos you can look on YouTube where Ed's preaching a sermon and they've got it right next to J.D. Greer preaching a sermon. They're the same words, the same gestures, the same jokes. They're the same stories. So J.D. Greer says, yeah, I remember. It reminds me when I was 12 years old and I would ride my bike down to the corner store and he would tell a story from his own life. And then Ed would tell the exact same story like it came from his life. And then he started tracing this down, and they asked J.D. about it. And J.D. goes, well, I gave him permission to use those sermons. And they started looking at J.D. Greer's sermons, and they found that he uses outside sources. And then this thing just blew up, and they discovered this company. You ever heard of it? This company, a docent group, this company markets itself to large megachurch pastors who basically spend all their time building their brand and not necessarily preaching to their congregation. And so what this group does is you tell them what you want to preach on, they'll do all the research, they'll put the outlines together, they'll put the PowerPoints together, they'll ship it to you, and basically they will create the sermon for you so you can stand up and preach it. Okay. And if, you know, they have been, I can't tell you the whitewashing that's taken place on a lot of the guys that use this uh, service now. Over a thousand pastors use it. Over 1.3 million Christians in the United States every Sunday hear sermons that, are, that come from this group. And so they started doing research on the writers. You'd be shocked. Some of these, I can't believe they've actually asked me to write sermons for them. I and mean, I'm a practicing homosexual. And, and you will go through some of these sermons and you will find that they are talking points for a left moral agenda. They talk about critical race theory. They talk about um, Marxism and socialism and all that kind of stuff. That's all intertwined in the messages that large church pastors get up and preach to their congregation, and there's this eroding of biblical truth that's coming from even groups like this that nobody was even aware of until Ed got caught with his hand in the cookie jar, and it kind of, dominoes kind of fell from there. The level of deception, even among the church, is shocking. Shocking. The level of Deception in our nation right now is, is compelling. Things happen so fast, it's like this happens and that happens and this happens. And, and wait a second, I mean, it took forever for even uh, the whole gay rights movement to become mainstream. And then out of nowhere, in a matter of three years, there's this transgenderism. And now there's this pansexual and, and I don't even know what they call it anymore, not bisexual or whatever sexual I am. And, and now you have to call me that. You, I, I go by they and them or mouse or cat. You know, you, you have to call me that. And if you don't, then you're in trouble. And when it comes to school, people are getting fired because they're not referring to a seven-year-old girl as Frank. And, and, and that's okay. And the church sits by and does nothing. Nothing. Because that's out there. That's way out there. We don't need to mess with that out there. Exact same problem they had in the Third Reich. Well, all of a sudden, this man named Adolf Hitler just came to the forefront. Nobody even knew who he was. I mean, he was in prison 
and uh, jailed and wrote Mein Kampf and he told everybody exactly what he was going to do. Here is the agenda. If I ever get to power, this is what's going to happen. And if, if, you'll, if you'll watch this from 1933 to 1934, how quickly these things, places, these events took place. And I'm not going to read all of these. I'm just going to give you a, a general uh, overview of this, you will find that in the Third Reich in Nazi Germany, which was a very Protestant nation at that time, things moved even quicker than they're moving in our nation right now, and the church did nothing. They did not only stand up against it, they didn't even want to know it was there. A, a prudent man sees the evil going on and hides himself, but the simple just pass on by, don't bother me with the facts, I just want to live my own life, my own way, and they pay the penalty or suffer persecution. The government in Germany at this time was much like the government in Israel is right now, and in um, England, it was a parliamentary form of government where you had elected officials that had to come together and form a government, a majority of government from all these factions that got elected from the various states and providences. You had a president but did not have absolute power because he also had the parliament here. And in Israel, it's called the Knesset. Um, in Germany, it was called the Reichstag and all that kind of stuff. And so you had this kind of dual government. At this time, you had uh, Hindenburg, who uh, happened to be... Um, who happened to be the president at that time, an aging man that, that they, everybody respected because of World War I. And then you had this group of elected officials that they couldn't even get it together. The German people were angry at the fact that they had this treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I, and they had to pay this incredible amount of money to France and England to pay for the war. They couldn't arm themselves. They couldn't rebuild their government. These proud Jewish uh, German people felt maligned by other nations, and so there was a hotbed for somebody like Adolf Hitler. January 4th, uh, Hitler secretly meets at the home of German banker Kurt von Schroeder, and he meets with the chancellor, which is, you got the president, you got the chancellor, and you got the Reichstag over here. Now, first time Hitler even meets with anybody is January 4th, 1933. Um, he meets on January 22nd with Oscar Hindenburg, the son of the, pre the uh, president at that time. And then by, Janu by January 30th of 1933, Adolf Hitler is appointed chancellor of Germany. Where did that come from? I mean, he first meets the people at uh, the beginning of the month, and at the 30th of the month, you now have Hindenburg, this aging 80-year-old man who's kind of taking himself out of the politicians, and you have Adolf Hitler now is the chancellor. Very next day, uh, in February, he announces his proclamation to the German people, promising new elections by uh, March 5th. He convinces Hindenburg to dissolve the government at that time. January, February 2nd, he meets with top military leaders, described gives them the plans for rearming Germany at that time. Two days later, February 4th, he decrees for the protection of the German people and took power among himself to ban all political meetings and all political parties that disagreed with him. What, you think they came up with that plan in two days? That stuff was all in the works. They're just looking for opportunities to do that. February 22nd, Goring, one of his uh, top officials, you had the you had Hitler was creating the SS. You had these brown shirt stormtroopers from a political party before. You had the military. They combined them all together. 
by February 22nd of 1933. Hitler now has been chancellor of Germany for three weeks. He now has a personal SA and SS men sworn as auxiliary police, faithful to him, totaling 40,000 people. What we need now is a crisis. And once we have a crisis, like the coronavirus or 9-11 or something of that nature, as soon as we have a crisis, then, of course, we can do everything we want to, to take total control. Five days later, on February 27, 1933, the Reichstag building was burned down, blamed on the communists. And arson said, had said it. One day later, like they, like they stayed up all night writing this, one day later, the emergency decree for the protection of people and state was passed. And it suspended civil rights. It was a ban on left-wing political press. You rounded up dissidents at that time. And all over the next five months, all parties contrary to the Nazi party were shut down. April, May, and June. We find that, uh, uh, well, in March 20th, for example, Henrik Himmler creates the first concentration camp in Dachau. For who? Why would you do that? Well, they're not really concentration camps. We're going to call them re-education centers or today isolation centers. We're going to, you know, we just need to have that for, for, for something. Okay. Um, March 23rd, the Enabling Act was uh, passed that gave Hitler the power to enact laws without the involvement of their Congress. By the way, that's called in our nation an executive order, where president sits down and just writes what he wants to write, 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 write. And sometimes it takes years for the courts to invalidate that. And we're finding that in our own nation right now. By April 1st, Hitler's been in power, what, two and a half months? There was an official state-sponsored one-day boycott of Jewish shops. Why? Because in Mein Kampf, we're going to blame the Jews for everything that's going on. The church didn't say anything about that. The press didn't say anything about that. Okay. Five days later, on April 7th, there was a law passed called the Restoration of the Professional Civil Service, which introduced that all uh, the Jews were banned from public service. Trade unions were banned on May 2nd. Um, so the Social Democratic Party was banned on June 22nd. All political parties other than the Nazi Party were officially banned on July 5th, and on and on and on. I won't go through all of this, but you will find in 1933 and 1934 that over and over again, the Nazi Party took control. They marginalized the Jews. They took them out of um, they took them out of the arts. They, they no longer allowed them to hold professional positions. You couldn't be a lawyer. You couldn't do anything. They rounded up dissidents. They had the night of long knives where the government just turned thugs against the Jews. And, it, and they went out that night murdering hundreds of Jews, tearing down shops. The government did nothing because it's the Jews that's causing problems in our nation right now. Just like it's the Christians and the conservatives and the patriots who refuse to take the vaccine, you're going to destroy our nation. And the church did nothing. What was the church like in Nazi Germany? Remember, German, heart of the, uh, the Protestant Reformation. There were, at 1933, 45 million Protestants in Germany at that time. 
out of a population of 65 million. Well, that's pretty powerful. 45 million Protestants, evangelicals we would call today, and the total population of 65 million. And there were 525,000 Jews. Of the church at that time, by 1935, there were 18,000 pastors. Listen very carefully. Of those 18,000 pastors, 3,000 of those supported very strongly what was known as the German church. It was the state church. It was our duty to follow Caesar. And, and so therefore, you know, we're, we're going to have the Nazi flag and we're going to have the, the Christian flag together. We're just very German state church people. Okay. There was another 3,000 pastors who said no. And they created what was known as the Confessing Church. It was the church that the Niemöller and Bonhoeffer were part of. It was the church that the government came in and uh, even in 1935 arrested 700 of the pastors, putting many of them to death. They confiscated money in the banks that the churches had. They drove them out of their buildings. Therefore, Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer had to teach his students in seminaries in barns that were donated to him by sympathetic other Christians with no electricity and no running water in the midst of winter. Read the testimony of it, getting that message out. And there were 12,000 pastors who just didn't care. Whatever. We're just going to keep doing our vacation Bible school and we're going to keep doing the things we've always done. We've got a cantata coming up at Easter and you know we've got a Christmas deal we're going to go through with our luminaries out there. We're just going to go through church doing the things that we are. And the sinister move of the government and Satan behind all this was designed to destroy the church in Nazi Germany. And you know how it turned out. They went to war in 1939, not that many years later. In 1933, there was a big conference of believers at that time. The church got together and they had a, what they would call an ecumenical meeting. And they said, this is how the church is going to look in Germany. This is what we need to do based on our position from our Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler. Number one, we're going to remove every pastor that is unsympathetic with national socialism with one-party government, with doing exactly what we want to do. If a pastor is a dissident, a pastor will no longer be paid. The state will no longer take care of him. The church must fire him for someone not toting the party line. Number two, we're going to expel every single person in the church of Jewish descent. That means they're born Jews, or that means that maybe they're a Gentile who married a Jew. They're out. They're done. We're going to do a racial, religious purging of the church at that time. They even offered what was called the Arian paragraph, which basically said exactly what this second point does. And that's what it's talking about here, the Arian paragraph church-wide, which means that no Jew can have any place in the kingdom of God because we're going to blame the Jews for everything evil in the world right now. It continues. Because the Old Testament deals with the nation of Israel, we're removing that from our Bible. Our Bible would consist of nothing now but just the New Testament. And anything in our worship services that are non-German, let's say it's a, a creed that we read or something of that nature, we're removing all of that. And what we're going to do is we're going to reinvent Jesus. We're going to present Jesus different from the biblical Jesus, the rider on the white horse. And he's going to be more heroic. 
more militant, more positive. As a matter of fact, we want to show Jesus as being pro-Aryan, which is what we are, non-Jewish, and he spends most of his time fighting off the corrupt Jewish influences in the land right now. We're going to turn Jesus, a Jew, against the Jews. And most of the church and most of the Christians did nothing. I don't care. Long as I can come and you know, do my little religious thing and then go home and, and work my business, it's really okay. Oh, my neighbor down here, people that I go to work with, they've lost their jobs because they refused to, to cow down to this or because they were, had some sort of relationship to a, uh, to a Jew at that time. Well, then that's their problem. It's not my problem. I'm just going to rock on with life the way it is right now. And quite honestly, our nation is moving in the same direction. Only it's not the Jews, it's us. It's Christians or conservatives or patriots or white people or hardworking middle-class people. The deplorables, as uh, Hillary Clinton called us, those are the people that are standing against whatever movement our government wants to have. And we just sit around like it's okay, not realizing that our faith is going to be assaulted and our faith is going to be challenged. And do we have the kind of faith to persevere during tough times? Let's just use something as simple as the vaccine. I don't care if you're pro-vaccine or a non-vaccine. It doesn't really matter. The point is you should have a choice whether you ingest something in your body or not. True? So the government caught a lot of flack from that. The government comes out and says, hey, we're not mandating you know, that everybody gets vaccines except in the military. That, that is coming. They're talking about that now. We're not going to mandate that, but we're going to ask private business to do that. So if you don't have a vaccine, you can't come into my shop. You don't wear a mask. You can't come. You have to, to maintain six feet apart. Otherwise, we're not going to serve you. As a matter of fact, you can't travel. Can't travel, can't get on a plane, can't get on a bus, can't do anything unless you've had a vaccine or proof of a vaccine or eventually have the vaccine card, your card that allows you freedom of travel in our nation that other countries like Israel have already instituted. Matter of fact, if you don't have a vaccine, you can't gather publicly. You can't go to a movie, you can't go to a concert. You're not even going to be able to have a party at your house with more than so many people. We've already had some of that last year in the coronavirus lockdown, and we saw how our government maybe was not as honest with its citizens and transparent as it should have been with the agenda behind it. But this is the direction we're heading. And we're just looking at one small item, just the vaccine. No vaccine, no job. What do you mean? They're not doing that. Oh, yes, they are. As a matter of fact, Chris is a nurse. Um, the two largest hospital groups in Charlotte have given them until I think August 31st to get the vaccine or everybody loses their job, Novant and Atrium. Uh, Krista realizes as a nurse, it's coming down here to Gaston County. It'll probably happen in November when Gaston, when um, Caramount, right, mandates flu vaccines and, and probably that time or in January, the FDA will come out and say, hey, it's completely safe. Ignore the uh, in, you know, in, inflammation of the hearts and stuff of that nature. It's, it's totally fine. And she realizes she's going to lose her job. She's a mother with six children, a single mom with six children. She has a choice to make. You take a vaccine that maybe she has problems with. I don't want to take a vaccine morally that was created by 
you know, aborted fetuses. I'm not interested in doing that. Are mandated by our government. Then you don't work here any longer. And she's facing that right now. But it never happened to us. No vaccine. Can't go in the store. Can't buy or sell. You know, the precursor to the mark of the beast may be something like this. And if by some chance, if by some chance you have a personal opinion, a personal, and that opinion may be nothing more than citing other studies who go against the for public consumption opinion of our city state and our, instit, and our medical institution right now. Maybe you just want to post on Facebook some additional studies or your opinion about that or a story that you heard about somebody who's had the vaccine and experienced something better. Maybe you have a question such as why is it that these bunch of Democrats got on an airplane and they flew to Washington to meet with Kamala Harris and they're all vaccinated and a bunch of them came down with the virus. How can you come down with a virus if you're vaccinated? And I'm just using this as an example. This is not an anti-vaccination message. I mean, even if you just want to speak about that, no vaccine, no position positive about a vaccine, you're now being deplatformed. No more First Amendment rights for you. You can't even speak anything contrary to our position. It's exactly what Hitler did when he first took over the press. Appointed Goebbels as his ministry, minister of propaganda. That's what he was called. So what do we do? I mean, it's coming. It's here. And just hasn't filtered down to us yet because we're blessed to live in, you know, north and there's South Carolina right, right across the road from us. And, and we're kind of rural and we're in the country and, you know, we're not in one of these hotbed cities right now. What are we supposed to do when our faith is assaulted like that? Well, we have to make sure we have the faith to be assaulted. We need to make sure that we, we have true faith, not Sunday school faith or VBS veggie tale faith or your best life now faith. It means Christianity only means a little to me, to me. And that really, it's not that big a deal to me that much. And not that kind of faith, but we have to have the kind of faith that people who suffered persecution because of their faith or because of a government that was against their position, the kind of faith they had in scripture, that's the kind of faith we need to have which, by the way, is the crux of the whole message here, and I've pretty much run out of time. Let me just hit you with three of them really quick. Faith of Abraham. If you remember correctly, in Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abraham, and what he says is this, get out of your country. What? I live here. And if you look at a map, I mean, he's in Ur of the Chaldees. He's over there um, hundreds of miles away from the promised land, which is in the middle of a desert. Get away from your country. Not only your country, from your family and from your father's house, everything that's left to you, and go to a land that I will show you. Well, where is it? I'll let you know when you get there. What does it look like? You'll see when you get there. How long will it take to get there? I'll let you know. And if you do this for me, here's the promise, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you have a dream tonight. You have a vision tonight. God stands in front of you in the form of 
Jesus Christ and communicates verbally a message like this to you and you wake up and go, ah, that really wasn't God. I really don't think that's true. I must ate too much pizza. I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to give up anything. I just want to be part of the 12,000 pastors in Nazi Germany who was too busy in my own life that I just got swept away and didn't care about anything. Because Jesus is not really number one. Jesus is kind of part of me, but I'm number one. I call the shots. It's my life. Faith Abraham, he could have said no, by the way. Not going to do it. I mean, he even messed up because he's supposed to get away from his family, took Lot with him, and we all know how that turned out. What about this kind of faith? Think you can muster up that kind of faith? This is the kind of faith that you're going to need. You're going to need to persevere tough times. Second example of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember the story? They're taken along with Daniel. The only reason why we know these three guys is they entered into the fast with Daniel when they first got there. Daniel interpreted the king's dream. Daniel's exalted. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were just pretty good guys. They were taken with the rest of the Jews. All the Jews had faith. That's why they were taken. Some of them had more faith. Daniel had supreme faith. These three guys were, um, were, uh, were singled out. And then we don't hear any more about them until we get to... Daniel chapter 3. For some reason, Daniel's gone, and the king makes this big statue, and he says that everybody needs to worship the statue. When you hear the trumpet blow, you will bow down and worship. If you don't bow down and worship, or force sterilize your children, or take a vaccine, or you know, get all semblance of God out or turn in your guns or your Bibles or whatever the government says, if you don't do this, I will take you and throw you into a fiery furnace and you will fry because your obedience is demanded. And so the trumpet blew and the statue was brought out and these three guys refused to bow. They refused. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he knew who, he was, who they were, called him in and says, is this true that you refuse to bow down? If you don't bow down, let me reiterate what's going to happen. I'm going to burn you alive. So what's your decision? And here's what they said. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. You know our decision. If that is the case, you're going to burn us to death if we don't bow down. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king, either in life or in death, no matter. But if not, if he doesn't deliver us out of the furnace, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you've set up, period. King was enraged. King took some of his soldiers and they heated it so hot that the soldiers came as when they were getting ready to throw them in the furnace that they died from the heat. And if you remember the rest of the story, Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace and found that the three men were alive. They didn't even smell like smoke. Their clothes weren't burned. They were in perfect health. And with them was another man with the appearance of the Son of God. Do you have that kind of faith? doesn't mean that he'll rescue you like this. But I don't care if you kill me. I don't care if you take stuff away from me. I don't care what you say. I will not serve your God. Because my faith is in him and him alone. Final one, and I like this one. 
This is the story of Elijah. So Elijah declare, declares a, a famine and a, or a drought in the land, and people are dying. And the, the, for a while, he was fed by this brook, and the ravens brought him food. And pretty soon, the brook dried up. So he went into this town, and he met this woman, this widow. And this widow comes to her. She's depressed. She has no food. She has a sickly son, and she's getting ready to eat her last meal and die. And Elijah says, can you bring me some water and make me a little piece of bread with what you have? And she says, this is the Lord your God lives. I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. That's all I have. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and then die. It's our last meal. We'll die. And Elijah says, if you will fix me a meal first. God will make sure that your bin of flour never runs dry and your oil will always be in the jar and he will sustain you during this drought. What would you and I say? <laughs> no, you're just a selfish, narcissistic old man who's trying to take my last meal from me, ain't gonna do it. It's not what she did. Okay, okay, I'm just gonna trust the Lord in this. And of course, what Elijah said would happen actually happened. Do you have that kind of faith? Is it possible to have that kind of faith? You're going to need, we're all going to need that kind of faith if things continue to get worse. For example, and this is the last thing I'll share with you. If Jesus said to you what he said to these men, what would happen? The story here in Matthew chapter 9 is a group of blind men. They're crawling out to Jesus, and, and they want to receive their eyesight. Jesus said to them, according to your faith, let it be done to you. You're asking me for a healing. According to your faith, let it be done to you. Would you have been healed, or would you have groped your way home in darkness? Would you have the faith? to receive this from Christ? Or would your faith still be haphazard, just a, a 15 minutes a day and a little devotional? Or is it invested in who Jesus is? I, um, I don't know any other need that I need, and by definition, probably you need, and the church needs any more than our faith to grow. And you know, I've coined the phrase faith prepper. A prepper is someone who puts away something today, sacrifices today in order to mitigate a potential catastrophe tomorrow. We have insurance. Why? I pay life insurance. Why? Well, I'm paying so much dollars a month so that if I die, and I hope I don't, but if I die, my wife will be taken care of. Okay, that's a prepper. You know, we put money away in a savings account. Why? So if I lose my job, I've got six months cash reserve over here or something of that nature. I mean, we're all prepping some, somehow. We go to the grocery store. All I need is one box of this particular item, but they're running a sale right now. So you know what? I'm going to buy three boxes so that if something happens, I don't have to have to go back to the store and I've got something at a really good price and I'm saving some money. That, that's a prepper. Don't let our nation with the doomsday prepper, make it think it's all about you. But when it comes to faith, the faith prepper, it's someone who sacrifices today to set apart in order to mitigate a potential disaster. 
my faith. I'm willing to spend time today to grow my faith and my trust and my obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when or if, probably more when, bad times come, I'll be prepared spiritually. Spiritually. Because if you wait to the end, there is no tomorrow. I have no idea. I have no idea what the Lord's going to do with our nation. I do believe it's under judgment right now, possibly because we have, uh, you know, we've walked away from our allegiance to uh, our, our defense and support of Israel right now. Plus, if you think about it, in order for Israel during the seven-year tribulation period, you have to make a peace treaty with the Antichrist. It means the great protector of Israel, the big Satan, as the Muslims call us, which is us, is out of the picture or we're having nothing to do with Israel anymore, and therefore we will suffer the consequences of that. This is where we're living right now. And every day seems to get worse. That's why becoming a faith prepper is so important. What I would like to do is I would like this week to start sending out some messages, maybe a couple times this week, maybe a couple times a week, like I did with the Higher Christian Life dealing with issues of faith and how your faith needs to grow. They're kind of connected. And what we need to do in order to prepare our faith, we're talking about faith here, to have the kind of faith that we can trust the Lord like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you know what? This world has no hold on me anymore. If you save me, great. If you don't, I'm still delivered out of your hands. I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord and hopefully help our faith grow. I'm going to send an email out to everybody. If you don't want to receive these emails, if you, I mean, I'm really not interested in hearing that kind of stuff, just shoot me an email, let me know, we'll take you off the list. This is the voluntary deal. But I want to start sending this out that hopefully more than just on Sunday, and those of you that come on Tuesday, we can have our faith grow to the point that we can be empowered by him to be the light in darkness, the salt of the earth he's called us to do. Blessed are you, when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely, Jesus said, for great is your reward in heaven. You ready for that kind of life? He calls it a, a blessing. The um, scripture says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Do you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus? You do if you're part of the 3,000. You're not if you're part of the 12. If you decide to live godly in Christ, uh, you will suffer persecution. It's a given. Do you have the faith for that? Will that make your faith stronger? Will you, like the early disciples, praise God for being counted worthy to suffer shame like Christ? If not, what you'll end up doing is not living godly in Christ Jesus, kind of limping along, hoping they'll let you alone, and they will for a season, but they're coming. They're coming because we, Christ bearers, are standing in the way of Satan's agenda. Amen? So that's what I want to do. I want to send these out to you this week and uh, for the foreseeable future. And I hope they're a blessing to you. If I don't have your email address, if you can give it to Karen, I'll make sure that I include it on that. And um, hopefully our faith will grow to the point that we will fear nothing. Amen? Let me pray.